Ron Kovac, has been in the securities industry for 52 continuous years, starting his career at Merrill Lynch in Akron, Ohio, where he met and married his wife, Priscilla, who is an RN. Ron was transferred to Cleveland, Ohio, where he was head of the regional corporate bond trading desk at Merrill Lynch. In 1975, he was transferred by Merrill Lynch to Florida, where he served as an investment advisor. In 1997, he and his son Brian started their own stock brokerage and investment advisory firm, Kovac Securities and Kovac Advisors. Their firm currently ranks in the top 50 out of 4,000 broker-dealers in the United States and has approximately $12 billion under management. Dr. Kovac brought his business skills to the area of ministry. He is an elder of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, 33 years, 25 of which as Dr. D. James Kennedy's clerk of session. He was a founding director of the Coral Ridge Ministries television program. As the elder in charge of stewardship at Coral Ridge, Dr. Ron supervised the budget, and it was from this experience that he wrote the book, A Gift That Changed the World. Be sure that you get your complimentary copy available. If you missed Sunday, Dr. Ron, if he has the strength at the end, will still sign some books. We have some here. You can get one on the weekend. Many of you were here Sunday, and it was just a wonderful time together where he signed those books. But there's more here for you. If you missed, we'll make sure that you'll get a copy. Really, what really blesses my heart here through all of this introduction is now he is an elder emeritus at the cross and has been involved from the beginning. He launched this church with us. Dr. Kovac has the following earned academic degrees. B.S. University of Alabama, B.A. Western Illinois University, M.S. Berry University in television management, doctorate in management, Liberty University, and Ph.D. Trinity Theological Seminary. Before I give the final word, I just wanted to add this. There's really been three primary, there have been many men who have influenced my life, but three primary have influenced my preaching and teaching ministry. One would surely be Dr. Kennedy. The next would be Dr. Sam Lamerson. But then in that same group would be Dr. Ron Kovac. I'll never forget what I thought was a gospel invitation at the end of a sermon Remember, I, I didn't preach much at Coral Ridge. So when we launched, I was thrown into the fire. And I remember the Sunday that we stood in the back and he said, you know, Pastor, you're doing a wonderful job giving a proclamation, but you're not giving an invitation. And I thought, and he says, you're telling them to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you're proclaiming the gospel, but you need to invite them to receive Christ. Something I knew intellectually, but it hadn't sunk to my heart standing in that pulpit, and we have never missed an opportunity to give an invitation, not just from that pulpit, but everywhere that we go. So this man has been my mentor, has influenced me greatly, and it is with deep affection and gratitude that I ask you give a warm welcome, a warm cross welcome to Dr. Ron Kovac. Wow, I almost have to ask who that guy is. <clears throat> I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, suburb on the east side called Turtle Creek. Every, anybody here from Pennsylvania, from Pittsburgh? You are? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, well, I used to go to the movies every Saturday afternoon that I could, and it was uh, 25 cents for admission, and they had these double headers. They were usually westerns, and I became a big fan of western pictures and movies, and you know, with Gene Autry and and Tom Mix and uh, 
Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, The Lone Ranger. And one of my favorite movies was uh, titled Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And that uh, <clears throat> had a great line in there. As Butch and Sundance were riding away, they saw this group that was following them and kept following them and kept following them. They couldn't lose them and kept following them. And the great line that came out of the movie was, who are those guys? Do you remember that? Who are those guys? Well, <clears throat> I would say the same about the Federal Reserve. Who are those guys? Everybody knows uh, about the Federal Reserve, but who are they? And what do they do? And how does it affect my daily life? How much of my mortgage is determined by the actions of the Fed? Well, yeah, uh, so much of your daily life, your mortgage, your savings, your checking, your 401k, your IRA is all affected by the activity of the Fed. So the objective of this lecture is to help you understand the volatility in fixed income instruments. Volatility. What makes them go up and down? And if we get time, at the end we'll talk a little bit about currency. Early in the 1900s, the federal banking system mirrored that of the Europeans, where you had one central bank in London, and one central bank in Paris, and one central bank in Berlin. And so the problems that came out of that for America was that America was both large and consuming. And so the supply of money in the United States became inelastic. That is, it, it couldn't move. What happened was it flowed to large cities and uh, about every 15 years, there was a crisis of currency that would wreck the economy, cause a major downturn. And so, while the markets were volatile, they sucked up the money and it flowed to the large cities, that is, from uh, New York uh, and Chicago primarily, Boston, would attract all the money because what was going on were bankers' loans, brokers' loans, and because of the inelasticity and the immobility of money, the crisis would rear its ugly head about every 15 years, and uh, that was uh, no good. About that time in 1910, a guy by the name of Nelson Aldrich was the head of the the Senate Banking Committee. He had a friend, Henry Davidson, over at J.P. Morgan, and these guys would talk, what can we do to fix this financial system that we got ourselves into? And uh, so they decided they would get some of their smartest buddies, and they would have a meeting and, and uh, talk about what they could do. So it was in November 1910 that Nelson Aldridge and his buddy Henry Davidson got A. Platt Andrew, Arthur Shelton, Frank Venderslip, and Paul Wahlberg. They met at a Jekyll Island club, which is off the coast of Carolina, and uh, that was the uh, first meeting of, of these brains that were going to come up with a solution. They had a, it was very selective. They had, the ruse was they were going duck hunting. But the, the six of them kept it very secret and didn't come out until later on. In fact, they wouldn't even use last names. They called it the First Name Club. Eventually, it went out of business in, uh, I think, 1942. So, uh, yeah, that was the end of that. Now, it's a, I understand, as a, a historical monument. In fact, I know some people that were there. So, out of that came a plan, which the Congress adopted, 
And the Federal Reserve Act was signed by President Woodrow Wilson in December 23rd, 1913. And so the, uh, it was right before Christmas when all the uh, Congress was out that they pushed this thing through, December 23rd. So, you know, you got a, a list of uh, the owners. Who then were the owners of, of the Federal Reserve when they put this together? Who owned it? And uh, you'll be surprised to hear some of the names. Rothschild Bank of London, the Rothschild Bank of Berlin, Warburg Bank of Hamburg, Warburg Bank of Amsterdam. Have you got the list up there? There you go. And uh, Chase, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Kuhn Loeb, plus member banks. So it's the member banks that own the Fed. And what do they do? Well, uh, how's it set up? First of all, we have to understand how the Fed is set up. And it's set up with uh, 12 districts. And the districts are... Starting in Boston, New York, Philly, Cleveland, Richmond, Atlanta, 12 districts. So those are where the headquarter primary banks are for the Federal Reserve. And then each has separate branch offices. For instance, we have a branch of the Fed down in Miami. It's a branch of the Atlanta Fed. And so... It's used for a number of things we're going to take a look at here in a minute. So that's, that's the structure. Twelve independent banks across the United States. And then it's broken down into two other very important committees. And they make up what is known as the Board of Governors. So you got the, the 12 banks, and you got underneath that, you got seven members of the Board of Governors that... Uh, are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So the term is 14 years that uh, each member of the Board of government Governors serve, and uh, every two years the term expires. So one rolls off and president nominates a successor to come on, and that's every two years. Now the chairman and the vice chairman guy by the name of Jerome Pyle, he's been in the news lately, along with uh, John Williams, vice chair. Uh, they have been nominated and confirmed by the Senate, and so they constitute the Board of Governors, which is in addition now to the 12 district presidents. Each, 12, each bank is uh, brought into the, the fold by having an independent president, and uh, independent bank. So the third component is the Fed Open Market Committee. And in, in the Fed Open Market Committee, the uh, committee is made up of 12 different members. Seven members from the Board of Governors, which we talked about, seven members of the Board of Governors, and the president of the New York Fed Bank, and four of the other 11 presidents. So you take that group of 12 and you pick four of those and each serve a one-year term and they rotate off. So the Board of Governors meets eight times a year and evaluates the monetary system and the effects of the GNP and how's the economy doing. And by the way, the economy is doing great. It is truly great. The uh, pundits were forecasting one and a half to two percent GDP for the first quarter. We came in over three, which was just uh, astounding. In the stock market, and everybody's happy, and uh, your four hundred one k's and your IRAs are doing well, and so you um, <clears throat> should be very pleased with the activity of uh, Donald Trump. The uh, <laughs> So, the Fed, what do they do then? What do they actually do? And uh, 
There's five basic tasks that they do. First, they conduct the nation's monetary policy. That is, with the interest rates, they hold the system accountable for overheating or underperforming. They uh, act as a stable force in the financial system. And they have safety and stability of individual financial institutions at heart. That is what they try to do. The inelasticity of currency is overcome by the diversity of the bank system. And then the Board of Governors and the Open Market Committees, uh, we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, come in and they uh, work their magic in the interest rate sector of of the market, which controls everything that you do. And we're going to talk about how they do it. And uh, third thing, of course, or fourth thing is the payment and settlements of a banking transaction. Nowadays, with our advancement in technologies, you write a check and deposit it at the bank. It used to be, well, the check had to be presented. If you wrote a check on Bank America and you presented it at the local bank, uh, BB&T, Well, it used to take time for that check to get back out to wherever the bank that you wrote it on was. And at that uh, time, because it took time to clear the funds, you would uh, find that an opportunity was created for you to kite checks. And kiting checks was that you use a fake deposit to write against uh, other checks. And, And when the other checks go to bounce, you have another fake deposit in there, and so you have your own uh, Federal Reserve inelasticity supply in in action. But uh, because technology today has allowed the banks to actively clear the checks, if you deposit a check before 11 o'clock today, it's cleared before 2 o'clock. If you deposit it after... 11, it's going to clear the next day before 11 o'clock. That's, that's really good. Cool. And it clears through one bank. It used to clear through all sorts of uh, banks, but uh, now it just clears through one. It used to be like 28 of them. So the settlements of uh, payment of the banking transactions are conducted by the Fed. And you have, of course, supervision and examination of uh, member banks. They have... Uh, validation test models that they come in and look at and and, uh, uh, check on how the bank's health is doing. So there are five ways, and and this is uh, getting into the meat now of the lecture, five ways the Fed controls monetary supply. First, they raise or lower the discount rate. Now, uh, I make my employees memorize this if you want to write it down. uh, uh, First thing they do is raise or lower the discount rate. So what is the discount rate? The discount rate is the rate that member banks borrow from the Fed in their district. That's the discount rate. And that is the most sensitive change that they can make in the monetary system that is current and in the active float of the the, uh, instruments in the marketplace. And the second thing they can do is they can buy or sell treasuries through the Fed Open Market Committee. So the Fed Open Market Committee, you remember we talked about that, that was the third component. You had the presidents of the bank, then you had the Board of Governors, then you had the Federal Open Market Committee. And the Open Market Committee is the heart of what we as consumers feel. So the second is buy and sell treasuries through the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee. And that affects the rate of of, uh, Fed funds. So The principle then is if they go in and they buy treasuries, that is the Fed acting on behalf of the treasury, they go into the marketplace and they buy instruments. Well, what do they do? They make money easier because they take instruments out, which raises interest rates, 
And as a result, interest rates start to decline. So you buy instruments in the marketplace and you put money in. Conversely, if you want to tighten money, which they do occasionally, and we saw two rates with two rate increases within the last year, what happens is they go into the marketplace and they sell treasury instruments. So by selling the instruments, they put instruments in, they take money out. Therefore, yields are going to go up. So you have an inverse relationship of yields to prices. As prices decline, yields go up. As yields decline, prices go up. So that inverse relationship, yields to prices, is a very important uh, principle to understand. <clears throat> when they go in and they do that, uh, they raise or lower the third uh, section is they can raise or lower bank reserve requirements. That is to say, the bank has a certain amount of reserves they must keep on deposit, and what will happen is the Fed will say, okay, you're going to have to increase your reserves of your bank. So what, what that does is by increasing the reserves, it takes money out of the system. You have to cut the money that's in the system floating. And so in order to do that, they go in and they uh, change that rate. The fourth thing is uh, they can raise or lower the amount of vault cash. Vault cash is what is the banks are required to keep in the bank vault. You got that sitting there in the bank, the vault. I <clears throat> called the, my bank the other day. I was, I wanted to, Talk about negotiating a higher rate on my on my uh, savings account, and they said, "Well, we're closed today." And I said, "Closed? I mean, how could you be closed? It's a work day. It's like like Thursday or Friday." I said, "Oh well, we can't tell you why, but we're closed." And I thought, "Oh my goodness, they got robbed." <laughs> That's exactly what it was. They got there was a holdup. And uh, the bank was closed because they, they committed and they do an immediate audit to, f to figure out how much the bandits got away with. So they raise or lower the amount of vault cash. And then the fifth and final way that they control the monetary supply, which is probably the least sensitive, and very few of you all know about it, but they raise or lower the margin requirements that are uh, on stock purchases. So you have an increasing margin rate. You've got to put up more money. That sucks more money out of the system, takes it out and, and controls it within the stock market or the bond market. But uh, inevitably, by taking that money out, they will raise or lower that rate, and that will increase or decrease the monetary supply. And then finally, the heart of what I want you to learn today is the functions of volatility in fixed income instruments. What makes bonds go up and down? What makes them uh, of a nature where you can lose your shirt if you're not in the right sector or if you're in the wrong sector, you can lose your shirt? In the bond market, people say, well, you know, you can't lose money in bonds because they're going to pay off. Well, yeah, they're going to pay off, all right, in 30 years. You're going to be around in 30 years to uh, collect your bond? Uh, I think not. At least I won't be. So the function of volatility is very important that you understand because this is what's going to determine where you put your money as you invest, as uh, you set aside funds your, for your retirement in your uh, 401k or your IRA or whatever your savings plan is, when you set money aside, you're going to be uh, putting it into safe instruments. And what are safe instruments? Well, obviously, the highest safety is the treasury obligations, treasury bonds, treasury notes, and treasury bills. 
What are treasury bills? Well, they're instruments that are sold at a discount and redeemed at par with a maturity of up to including one year. So you got a one-year bill. Everything uh, less than 10 years is called a note. Everything over 10 years out is called a bond. So you have these uh, fixed income instruments that's going to comprise a part of your savings as you go forward in years. And so how do you protect that money? Because if you're in long bonds and that bond is subject to increased interest rates as a result of the Fed's activity, then what you're going to do is generate a nice fat loss and you're not going to have a, a, a very happy retirement when you give 30% of it away or 40%, which is very easy to do with a loss in the bond market. So the first function of that volatility, what makes it go up and down, is maturity. And maturity, or sometimes referred to as duration, <clears throat> is how long does it take before you get payment on that bond? How long is the bond going to sit out there before it uh, matures? And uh, that's the primary question that you have to ask. Well, that, and that is answered by the longevity of, of your uh, period between now and when you retire and what you want to do as far as safety with your, with your money. The first function is if you're going to look to have a uh, happy retirement, well, you're going to have a happy retirement if you have the uh, principle intact to spend when you get out and retire. If you don't have the principle to spend, you're not going to have a happy retirement. Um, so what you want to do is you want to look to see where the risk is in your fixed income instruments. And the risk is first immaturity. The second risk is that of coupon. And here's the function of volatility here. The lower the coupon, the more volatile the issue with an assumed basis point change. In other words, if you had a 4% bond and you had a 6 or 8% bond and all of the other indices of the bond were the same, the bond with the lower coupon will go up and down faster than the bond with the higher coupon. That is to say, the function, second function of volatility is coupon. The bond will go up, the bond will go down based upon the action of the Fed. As interest rates rise, that bond is going to go down. It's just a question of how much it's going to go down. And if it's a long maturity and a low coupon, that bond's going to sink. And you can lose your shirt on that. And most people don't know that. But uh, that's the case. And besides the credit risk, uh, let's say it's in a muni bond and you, you know, you're in Chicago muni bonds. Well, I don't like your chances of getting paid. So there's a risk there. So the second function is... Coupon, maturity and coupon. The third function is that of rating. You got a double A AA rated bond and you got a single A rated bond. Well, in a period of rising rates, when prices start to decline and rates start to go up and the Federal Reserve tightens the monetary supply system, what will happen is the bond with the highest rating will act better than the bond with a lower rating. In other words, a double A bond will act better in a period of declining rates, increasing prices, and worse, it'll act worse in a period of rising rates and declining prices. So um, rising rates will uh, wipe out your long bond, it'll wipe out your low coupon bond, and if your rating isn't sufficient enough, it's going to get you in principle also. So you have to be careful uh, for the 
The third is rating. And then the fourth function of volatility is the percentage of change. What percentage of change is going to take place when the Fed raises the, or lowers the rates? And the answer to that is it will be very uh, dramatic because the percentage of change that occurs in the period of rising rates is directly related to these four functions that you just wrote down. The maturity, the coupon, the rating, the percentage of change. So those, those are, are key indices, and if you grasp those and you take them away, practically now I'm going to look and show you what we, what we have in the way of, uh, I just clipped this from the, from the uh, Sun Sentinel, clipped it Monday, so it's uh, pretty timely, but it's, it, in the Sun Sentinel you got this uh, chart, and you, you look at it and you say interest rates. Well, yeah, there's a, first is the prime rate up there. Well, what is the prime rate? The prime rate is that rate which the member banks lend to their clients of highest ratings, highest quality credit ratings. And uh, six months ago, it was at a five and a quarter. Now it's up to a five and a half. One year ago, we see it was four and three quarters. Well, what is the prime rate? It's uh, fluctuating. And if you were going to get a mortgage, like my son got a mortgage a year ago, he got a three and a half percent 30-year fixed mortgage. And I said, good for you. And uh, after we talked about it, 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 he went and got the mortgage. But it was based upon the fact that we could see rates were poised to rise. And if that's the case, you're going to pay more for your mortgage. And the second, of course, is the Fed funds rate. And the Fed fund rate is the function of the <coughs> Open Market Committee, that the Open Market Committee goes in and, and buys instruments, takes money, takes instruments out, puts money in. When they want to tighten rates, they go in and they sell so that you take, put instruments in, they sell their instruments in, and they take the money out. So it's the opposite of what you may think. And what happens is, as a result of that, the interest rates will go up. It's pure and simple. It's a function of supply and demand. And that committee, that open market committee that we looked at, controls that. So... The next one up there is uh, Fed funds rate. Well, Fed funds are oh, basically overnight rates between banks. So, and uh, it uh, has increased there slightly also, 20 basis points. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but boy, you get into a long bond, and 20 basis points is a big move. If you're in a 25- or 30-year bond, you're getting a lot of interest. Yeah, you're getting more interest than you would if you were in a shorter bond. But lo and behold, you got a lot more risk in there as a result of being in that long maturity. So what you want to do is you want to weigh the outlook of interest rates against your anticipated move and see what you want to do as far as investing with a view toward maturity, coupon, rating, and percentage of change. Let's have a little fun with currency. Uh, look in your wallet and see if you got any money in there at all. If you don't, if you don't have any currency in there, you can maybe borrow a buck or two from your buddy and give it back. But uh, you take out a bill and you look at it, and there's some things you can learn by looking at the bill. Now, if you go back to the slide, David, that shows the, the 12 regional banks, uh, there you go, 
And you look at the letter designation A and the number one. That, uh, when you get down to St. Louis and it's H number eight, it's still, if you count down your fingers, you come up with eight. So it's still uh, the same indication that the money came from the bank. It's actually distributed uh, from 28 different banks. But uh, if you look, you see the C3 on mine. Uh, you got some numbers. C3 right here. You got numbers on there. And letters, the number and the letter will always be the same. It would be a number C would be the third. You know, and uh, Dallas K11 goes all the way out to San Francisco 12. Those are the 12 Federal Reserve District banks. And where the money was printed, and it's all printed by the uh, Bureau of Engraving, and uh, it's printed either in Fort Worth, Texas, or Washington, D.C. Now, in the upper right-hand corner, right under the denomination, you'll see a designation, and it's the plate that was used. But prior to that, you would have either an FW or it's blank. If there's no FW there, it means it was printed in Washington. If it was, if it was a FW, that means it was printed in Fort Worth. Anybody have any FWs? Okay, I see some hands go up. You know what I'm talking about, huh? Is there anybody that doesn't know what I'm talking about? Okay. So, that's... So the money is basically distributed by 28 different offices. Uh, one half to one third of our currency is held overseas, if you can believe that. Uh, it's printed by the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. Uh, in 2019, we printed $7 billion worth of notes, 7 billion notes, and uh, the value of those uh, notes was 206 billion we printed up so the printer destroys about 90% of the notes that come in at the bank local deposits you the currency that is uh, circulating if it doesn't look good they pull it immediately and about 90% of the currency is uh, pulled every year and printed. Uh, coins are produced in uh, either Denver or Philadelphia. And uh, they, they don't put the, the mint marking on the, on the coins. But in 2018, they printed uh, the D for Denver on uh, right underneath the number on a, on a one-cent shop, a shiny one-cent piece, a penny. If you, if you ever run across those, those are worth about $25, I understand. So if you... Uh, and they've been circulating a bunch of them down here. If you look and you've got a, a, uh, a 2018 penny and it's got a D underneath it, it's uh, probably worth something. So... So those, those are uh, produced in the United States. So uh, the format here is that we have a question and answer period, and that's going to last 10 minutes. And so let's have at it. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Pam. What's your opinion of Bitcoin? What's that? What's your opinion of Bitcoin? Ah, yes, Bitcoin. Well, uh, there is a, a lot of controversy around that. Um, some of the international monetary systems would like to change to the uh, uh, chain of uh, 
fixed block, the blockchain of, of various, not only Bitcoin, but others. But uh, the system is uh, pushing back on it. So Bitcoin is a, either a big ride or a big bust. Yeah. Yes, sir. Tighter monetary policy under conservative administrations going back, I think Dwight Eisenhower had a comment about that, as opposed to the more progressive administrations. Is there something that we're not seeing there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you're right. The conservatives have taken more of a uh, loose monetary policy, and the liberals have uh, taken a tighter monetary policy stance. If the currency in circulation or if interest rates, monetary supply is there, it has to have growth to accompany it. If it doesn't have the growth, if, they, if you got the gas going, but you haven't lit the grill, then it's not going to cook the meat or whatever you got on it. So if you think about it as the gas is the monetary system and the uh, flame is what you do to it, then if you... That's a pretty good metaphor, isn't it? If, if you make sure that uh, the growth is there before you loosen the monetary supply. We had less than 2% inflation, right? So with less than 2% inflation, I mean, you should have a good monetary uh, base of power. Remember, we're a capitalistic country. And so our function is utilizing capital for growth. And uh, taxation, of course, follows. But the capitalistic uh, of the con the capitalistic approach of the conservatives is m a much better stance and much better policy than the, uh, I believe, the liberal tight policy, which we've had heretofore. You know, like, for instance, in the Dodd Frank bill. Uh, the banks had to have a certain percentage of their loan portfolio in uh, low-income housing loans. And what that did was they uh, put all these loans on the books. They were required to, to have these loans on the books. And when they did, the um, loans started to fail because a lot of them, you didn't even have to have income. You just put down your income and away you went because the bank was interested in making these low-income loans. And so um, what happens then is the loans start to default. So the banks went to Wall Street and said, what, do you, what can we do with these defaulting loans? They said, we'll take care of it. We'll bundle them up and put them in one big package and we'll sell the package as one security. And so uh, they said, well, that's fine, but who's going to buy a, a package of junk bonds? They said, ah, we got the solution to that. We'll insure them with a, an insured insurance company, major insurance company, AIG. AIG went in and insured these junk bond packages with the idea that, well, they're going to pay off. But they didn't pay off, and, and it sucked the capital out of the system. You started to get calls, margin calls. You started to have these uh, uh, worthless securities trading in the system, in, in the marketplace, and lo and behold, it was not a good thing. So the liberal policies of Dodd-Frank uh, were, uh, I think, very detrimental to the econometric system. Does that do anything for you?
Well, I think it made mistakes in the past for sure. This, uh, I think they made a mistake this past year when they raised rates a quarter. They raised them a quarter, um, and what happened is uh, they were ahead of uh, because they thought there was going to be a big surge in inflation, and there was no inflation, less than two percent. So they were wrong, and uh, Donald Trump has been quick to admonish them and yeah, point out the fact that. Uh, they they need to have a rate about one percent lower than where it's currently at. Yes. How is all this money? This computer system must be unbelievable and well protected and hidden. Uh, if I understand the question, it's how is the money protected? You know, I mean, just these computers track all this that's going on. Right? Oh, yeah. And where are these computers at? <laughs> are they hidden underground? I mean, so. Are they vulnerable to the Russians? Are they vulnerable to the Russians, I guess, is the question. I, um, I haven't been privy to their locations, Doug. <laughs> they, they did not consult me on where they should put them. But I can tell you that technology has uh, today increased so much. And the security uh, of the uh, system has increased so much. It's very difficult when you know somebody's looking for you and trying to break in. Uh, I asked our IT people in our business, how many attempts do we get per month of attempts to break into our system? And the answer is we get about 14,000 attempts per month to break into our mainframe at, at uh, our, our system. So it's of the utmost concern, and uh, they're on it. Uh, as to the exact locations, I don't know. Yes. I've been reading that they're going. The other nations are trying to um, take remove the U.S. dollar as the basis for trade. Right. If that happens, will it cause a lot of havoc here? I mean, will will it affect us personally? Well, that's a great question. That's supposed to happen at the end of June of this year. Um, the answer, uh, they would try to use the blockchain settlement, the Bitcoin, the blockchain uh, settlement of funds. And it's going to be tough to do. I know they would like to do it. But when you go back and you look at the list of shareholders of the Federal Reserve, you see all these foreign banks in there, you know, they're going to have to give up settling transactions in dollars. The U.S. dollar is the basis for all settlement transactions worldwide. It's all convertible into dollars. So it's settled in dollars, international trade. The question you're asking is, what about when they come in with the blockchain and they try to change out the system? There's no question that uh, some, I've read some articles that say that uh, it's a big threat, something to worry about. But uh, I, on the other hand, I always say that the stock market is able to discern in advance what's going to happen. And I don't know how that happens, but it just represents the smartest thinking of the smartest people in the United States, if not the world. And so what they do is uh, they are able to discount in advance, figure out in advance what's going to happen unless it's a black swan, such as the incident that occurred uh, in 01, where the uh, towers were attacked. So, in answering the question, I think it, while they may desire to do that and hurt the U.S., I don't think they're going to be able to pull it off. The stock market agrees with me. They ain't going to pull it off. They aren't going to pull it off. Yes? Okay, so with this, a with this strong first quarter we have for 2019, Yep. Even though we had the government shutdown and a strong winter in January, yep. that means the second quarter of 2019 is probably going to be a stronger number. Yes. So an inflation under control, 
why wouldn't we just keep rate stables? Why would we should be asking for, for a lower rate at, at this moment? <laughs> well, Donald Trump is asking, and, and uh, he has said that we should have a 1% lower, and he's been after the Fed to cut the, the uh, rates again through the open market operations, through, through uh, lowering the discount rate, through uh, increasing the uh, decreasing the amount of bank reserves. Those are three activities that substantially take money out of the system. And so you're saying that with the good growth that we have, but I, w I will tell you that, yes, you're right, it should be lower, but everybody is so skeptical about whether that should happen or whether it shouldn't that uh, they, uh, they just are reluctant to do it. The one thing they did come out and say very uh, clearly is that they would not be raising rates, which I think we can, we can take that to the bank uh, for, for the next year. So at the end of a year, you want to look toward your fixed income instruments, maybe uh, have another look at the economy, what's going on. But apart from a black swan, I think that uh, we'll be in good shape. Yes. Dr. Kovac, thank you for tonight. This has been terrific. Warren Buffett and uh, Charlie Munger just had their Berkshire Hathaway annual uh, meeting this weekend, and they've been notorious for saying that with rates so low that over the last decade, they, if you have at least a 10-year time frame, you should look at stocks as, a, as opposed to bonds. So I'd be curious your take on with the 10-year Treasury today, I'd call it 2.5%. Your views on, if you have a, at least a 10-year time frame, where you would be putting money today? Great question. Um, well, I believe that uh, there should be stability, which... <clears throat> well, let me, let me back up for a moment. What, what, it, what needs to happen is you need to look at the individual whose money it is. If you're talking an institution, we can talk about that because that'd be a different uh, game plan if, if it was a large 401k for a large corporation or something like that. But giving the parameters that I think you're talking about, what you want to do is you want to have a diminished amount of fixed income, which would give still some stability, but you would want to increase your equity portion of your uh, uh, assets to reflect the fact that we got uh, full steam ahead for the next year. So if you use a one-year window and you look through it and you see rates rising at the end of one year or you follow the Fed's uh, activity and you see the Fed's activity is of such a nature that they're inclined to continue to have rates stabilized, then you're able to say, okay, we, we got the green light here, let's go ahead and uh, increase our equity portion of our portfolio. And by doing that, you certainly increase your risks. But uh, if you're uh, looking at uh, the tech sector, you want to make sure that you're not in too high a multiple that you can't get hurt on. And if you uh, are in stable stocks, then you want to make sure that you're able to ride through any down, down market that, that may come along because you're going to have down, down markets of profit-taking as you, as you go forward. But uh, the answer is you would probably want to increase your equity portion depending upon how old you are, whether that's your retirement money or whether that's your your safe money that you got to pay your electric bill when, when you retire. I think uh, we've run out of time. We're right at uh, 8.15. And, and so... I wanted to know if it will be wise to invest in Gold. I hear a lot of people saying that that's the safest way to invest and so forth. You know those? I know them very well. 
I would say that it's, it's, it's up to you if you want to take the risk of fluctuations that are going to occur, if you want to take the risk of no cash on cash. Remember the magic of compounding. If you take an 8% coupon over 20 years, 8% coupon bond over 20 years, the interest on the interest that's reinvested, the interest on the interest is greater than all the interest paid. So that's the magic of compounding, and you overlook that when you get into uh, precious metals. So uh, I, would, I would say uh, I've, I've got some gold coins. Um, I don't have a whole lot, but um, it's up to you whether, whether you want to take those risks. Well, that concludes uh, my lecture, and I've uh, enjoyed being able to discuss these things with you. God bless you as you invest your money. May he make you wealthy, healthy, and wise. Most of you don't know that yesterday the good doctor was not feeling well. And uh, we were on the phone, and it... Um, it didn't look good tonight. I was going to be pinch hinting to tell you all about the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Whew. So I went to my knees and I prayed to my God. And here he is. I, um, yeah, just listen. You know, just two more points, very personal. And then we have two things for you. When you leave, you have these cards here. First, I want to say thank you to Matthew, Matthew Vega, who was handing out the microphone. Give him a hand. Thank you, Matthew. For David in the booth and for Aaron and Kim behind the scenes, we have these cards for you to print your names. The table is out in the Welcome Center, where we used to eat and drink, and you can get your book before you leave tonight. But just another point of interest, just to, to, to see behind the veil, if you will. I think we all know people who have been... been successful in life but I, I have known some over the decades but this is truly this, this man and his wife his family uh, they, they're a church family they are committed to the advancement of the kingdom and he, he to use a phrase he puts his money where his mouth is and he is truly his family his company is committed to advancing the cause of the kingdom. And uh, most people, it, 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 you, you need to know that. And, um, and I say this, and he always, he, he never really likes me to say this, but someday I won't be able to say it again. Either I'll be gone or he'll be gone. But I do want to say this in front of you all. We wouldn't be where we are today. Bill Griffin nods his head. He's an elder here with us and launched. We wouldn't be here where we are without God's grace and without using Dr. Ron and, and Miss Priscilla and, and Brian and his family. Now, now Ron, Ron will be very quick to say, God could have used anyone. Uh, it's, see? And it's, is that true? Yes? But he chose you. And I just, that's all. We are blessed. We are thankful to have you. Thankful for you to continue to mentor me uh, for whatever time both of us have left. So thank you for tonight. Thank you for being a part of this church, and thank you for mentoring me. Give one more hand just to the Lord and to Ron. Thank you. Let me, let me close us in prayer. Father, we, we bow before you. Yes, we know that none of us, none of us are needed. Nothing will thwart the advancement of the kingdom of Christ in this world. Nothing. And yet, you have ordained the means to your ends. 
Father, you ordained the planting of this church. Me being a disciple of Dr. Kennedy, Dr. Ron, having served under him for so many decades. And here we are just a few miles up the street, standing on his shoulders and continuing his advancement of the kingdom as we preach the gospel and the whole counsel of God. Father, we lift Ron and Priscilla to you. Lord, we, we ask that you would continue to strengthen him, continue to give him good health and wellness for what we hope to be many more years. Lord, as he has said himself, it's been a good run. And he has run his race well by your grace and in your strength and power. But Lord, it's not done. So thank you for tonight. Thank you for launching the Christian Education Committee, Christian Ed classes under Brian McCluggage's leadership. Thank you for this night. This is historic for us. So bless Priscilla. Strengthen her as she continues to care for Dr. Ron. And Lord, just continue to use both of them as both instruments of salvation and sanctification in your mighty right hand. And I say from my heart, thank you for this man who has given his wisdom, his time, and his means for the cause of the kingdom here at Cross in Deerfield Beach. Bless us all now as we close out the evening. We'll finish with some desserts for those who would still like to linger. Bless us as we travel, and we will give you all the honor, praise, and glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name and all God.